Jude, beginning with verse 5. Now I want you to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, now as we turn our attention to your word found in the letter of Jude, we pray for your help, that uh, your spirit would be at work in our hearts, helping us to see the truth of what is contained here for us, for our good. And Father, we pray for other free churches in our Midwest district, Lord, in particular, we want to lift up the free church in uh, York, Nebraska, with Pastor Aaron uh, Fensenmeyer. We pray for this congregation now as they gather together for worship this morning, that you would open their eyes and open their ears to hear your word and to grow in their faith and then in their love for you and their love for one another. Lord, we pray for the same blessings upon us as well. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, when I began uh, the seventh grade, uh, our lockers were all the way up on the third floor of the old building of our school. Uh, when you got to high school, you had uh, the lockers on the first level, you know, in the, in the new building, but uh, they put the seventh graders way up in the old building on the third floor. And at the very top of the main stairway, uh, up the third floor was a little tiny closet with just enough room for a single desk and a chair inside of it. And it really got our attention the first time we saw it. Uh, one of the eighth graders told us that it was for in-school suspensions. If a student received an in-school suspension, they would have to sit at that desk, do their homework, alone in that tiny little closet, and the closet didn't have a door, so anyone walking by in the hallway could, could see them in there. And we heard of uh, the names of, of different students who had to serve in-school suspensions in that little room and how embarrassing it was for them. And we, we walked by that room multiple times every single day, going up and down those stairs. It was a constant reminder of the punishment one could suffer for misbehavior. Although, no teacher ever explained to us what that room 
was used for, just other students. So I always had to wonder, is it true? Did they really put students in that little tiny room? Or was this just something that they're telling us just to, just to scare us? It's just a legend. Should I take this seriously? Well, in verse 5, Jude writes to the believers that he was addressing. He says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. So Jude is not teaching anything new to the Christians who receive this letter here. He's just reminding them of examples of judgment from the teaching of Scripture and applying them to their current situation. And when he does this, he's just simply being a faithful shepherd to this congregation. Uh, For the role of the pastor is basically to, to simply remind believers of what they already know. Because we are so prone to forget the most important truths. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the two younger pastors that he had discipled, uh, Timothy and Titus, he told them that it is the pastor's job to remind the church of what they need to know in order to follow Christ faithfully. When he did this, Paul was just telling them to do the very thing that we find him doing in so many of his letters. So the best preachers and Bible teachers are not proclaiming new information to the people sitting under them. They are simply pointing them back to the glorious truths of God's word. Things that they have probably heard before, but but need to be reminded of consistently. And as we see in our passage, these reminders are often a matter of keeping the people in the way of salvation and away from straying from it. So Jude points people back to historical, scriptural examples of judgment here to warn the believers that if they go along with the teaching and the way of life of these certain people who have crept into their church, as he says in verse 4, it will end up in destruction for them. But the big question for them and for us this morning is, will we take these warnings seriously? Our main theme then for our passage this morning, Jude 5 through 10, is that if we are not humbled by God's judgments in the past, we are in danger of being destroyed by them in the future. If we are not humbled by God's judgments in the past, we are, being, we are in danger of being destroyed by them in the future. Now, uh, different translations of this passage divided up uh, in different ways. The ESV that I use has... Uh, Uh, verses 5 through 7 as one paragraph, and then verses 8 through 13 as another full paragraph. But I think the paragraph break should come after verse 10, and so that's how we're going to handle it this morning. Uh, Two paragraphs, verses uh, 5 through 7, and then 8 through 10. And uh, in the first paragraph, we have three reminders of the certainty of the Lord's judgment from the past. And then the second paragraph, verses 8 through 10, Jude warns of three sins that the intruders uh, in this church tempted the believers to follow them into. And as I mentioned before, Jude in his letter loves putting things in triads, in in, in threes. And so that's what we see here in our two paragraphs this morning. Uh, After that, we'll just conclude with our, 
our main application for us. So first, verses 5 through 7, three reminders of the certainty of the Lord's judgment from the past. So verses 5 through 7 refer to three different stories in the Old Testament, although they are not exactly what you'd call popular stories. Uh, You may not have spent much time uh, on these stories if you grew up going to Sunday school classes. Uh, I'm not even sure if the curriculum that we use focuses much on them. Uh, The third story there in verse 7 may be the most well-known. That is, of course, the the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But but even that is admittedly not a story we like to talk much about with our children. Jude does not put them in chronological order as we would expect him to. But he definitely leaves an impression upon us with the one story that he begins with and then the one that he ends with. And of course, that is intentional uh, by him. So he begins, in verse 5, with the example of the Israelites uh, taken from Numbers chapter 14. Look at verse 5 again. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now before we get into the main point of that verse, let me address the translation in the uh, ESV, which may sound a little strange to you uh, if you are reading from another translation. Um, in, in the Greek manuscript copies of Jude, there is a discrepancy for this verse. Some of the manuscripts have the Lord as the one saving the people in verse 5. Um, the earliest copies, however, of the Greek manuscripts that we have put the name of Jesus as the one doing the saving, and the destroying. So the question is, which did Jude use in his original letter? Did he use Jesus or did he use the Lord? And, and the, the one thing that uh, uh, we have to keep in mind, of course, is that um, whenever we read a New Testament author using the Lord in a verse, our default understanding ought to be that the author is referring to the Lord Jesus. He is the eternal God, and so Jude was referring to him here in verse 5 as the one who was active in saving his people out of Egypt and then in judging them in the wilderness for their unbelief. Um, Scholars see this different ways. Some scholars would would side with uh, the reading of the Lord here. Other scholars would side with the reading of Jesus here. I think we ought not to be too concerned about which it is. The Lord Jesus is the eternal Son of God and so was active throughout history, particularly in saving and judging his people. And as Jude reminds us, he, he, he both saves here and destroys. Verse 5 is referring to the example in uh, Numbers chapter 14, and uh, uh, actually verses chapter 13 and 14, uh, when Moses sent the 12 spies into Canaan, uh, the promised land, To look over things and uh, to bring back a report to them, Uh, the two most famous spies were, of course, Joshua and Caleb, and they brought back a great report. They said, the land is flowing with milk and honey. It is abundantly fruitful. The land is like grapes on the vine. It It is ripe for the taking. The Lord has given the land into our hands. Surely we can take it with him fighting for us. Come on, let's go. Let's go in. Let's, let's take the land. 
But the other 10 spies brought back a much different report. They said, sure, yeah, the land is all of those things. But the inhabitants of the land are like giants. And their cities are well fortified. We are no match for them. If we try to occupy their land, we will be destroyed. There's no way we can even think about entering that land. We're doomed. We're doomed. We might as well just go back to Egypt and be slaves there again because we're doomed if we think we can enter that land. So 10 were saying, there's no way, but two were saying, let's go. Who do you think the people listened to? Which group were the, were the people most influenced by? Well, of course, it was the 10 who spoke against God rather than the very few who spoke for him, as is so often the case today. So Jude says, the Lord Jesus destroyed those who did not believe. That is, who followed the influence of those who said, there's no way we can go into that land. We will be killed. We will be destroyed. Now, we've got to realize, they believed in God. They all believed in God. They believed that there was a God, and they even knew that God could save them. They had personally witnessed the Lord defeating the greatest military power in the world at the time. Pharaoh and the Egyptians with the, with the, the ten plagues and, and then dividing the Red Sea so they could get across safely. And then, of course, the Lord drowning Pharaoh and his army in the sea after they had made it safely to the other side. They had experienced God when he spoke to them on Mount Sinai and they had received the Ten Commandments from him. They definitely believed in the God of the Exodus. But here, influenced by the ten spies, what the people did not believe was that God could fulfill his promise of giving them the land of Canaan. They doubted that God was really good. They thought he was fooling them. They didn't believe he could be trusted. And they didn't believe he was sovereign and powerful enough to fulfill his word of promise to them. And so God judged them for their unbelief, it says, and they all died in the wilderness in the next 40 years. And then after that, the Lord led their children into the promised land under Joshua's leadership. So Jude wants to remind us, if we refuse to believe God's word, especially if we refuse to trust his promises, if we don't believe God can be trusted to fulfill his word, then we will also certainly face his judgment. Verse 6 then re refers to another Old Testament example, but this one has to do with angels. Look at verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Uh, most scholars uh, believe Jude is referring to the events described just prior to the narrative of Noah and the flood in Genesis Chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 here, these angels were the sons of God mentioned in uh, Genesis 6, verse 2, 
who took the daughters of men as their wives. Uh, therefore, as Jude explains, they did not stay within their position or, or their sphere of authority. They embodied themselves as men, as angels often did in the scriptures. And they intermarried with human women. Uh, this may bring up a lot of questions for us. But Jude is not at all interested in answering those questions. His main point and purpose here is to remind us that their rebellion has brought God's judgment upon them. They are now being imprisoned in darkness and are awaiting the great day of judgment that is still to come at the end. That judgment is certain to come. They will not get away with their rebellion. And since they are angels, there is no hope of redemption for them. So, beware. Don't mess around with God's order of things. And then verse 7, finally, Jude reminds the people of how and why Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities were destroyed. Look at verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. It says they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. The narrative is found in Genesis chapter 19 uh, for this example. And God's fiery judgment came down upon them, destroying the cities with fire and brimstone so that they have since served as an example of the fiery wrath and eternal conscious torment to come in hell for those that God will judge. As Jude is writing this in the first century, not only would the story have been well known to the Jewish Christians he was writing to, but they would also have been well aware of how desolate the valley where Sodom and Gomorrah once stood still was. It was a constant visual reminder of God's judgment against the debased sexual immorality that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities were judged for. There are several accounts from first century historians uh, that describe that valley, which is located just south of the Dead Sea in Palestine, as barren, as fruitless, and as lifeless. And it still is to this day. Uh, Philo uh, the first century Jewish historian described the land where the city stood this way. He says, To this day it is scorched up. The smoke is still emitted, and the sulfur which men dig up there are a proof of the calamity which befell that country. Again, more than one historian reports that the land still emitted smoke and was covered in sulfur more than 2,000 years later in the first century. So what a stark reminder that was of the Lord's certain judgment. All they had to do was just go and take a look at it. See the smoke emitting from the ground. God's certain judgment to come for those who despise his word. And now Jude, Jude warns here, these intruders have been teaching and living a lifestyle not all that different from Unbelieving Israel who refused to trust God's word and the people of Sodom who indulged their lusts in sexual immorality uh, of unnaturally perverse forms. He says, beware, beware, he is saying. 
Don't think they're going to get away with this. If they persist, God's judgment is just as certain to fall upon them. And, and we need to realize this too. For, for I, I've heard many Christians wonder, you know, if God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness and sexual immorality, particularly their glorification of homosexual perversion, well, shouldn't God also pour out his judgment upon our country as well? Or at least cities like San Francisco and Hollywood? I mean, isn't it a bit unjust of God to allow those cities that we know to continue in their wickedness and not pour out his wrath on them as he did with Sodom and Gomorrah? Friends, the holy, righteous, and just God will certainly do what is right. We must trust that. The account we have of God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah in his word is a witness. It is a warning. It is a type of the judgment that is to come. It is pointing forward to the awful, terrible judgment in hell that is to come for the wicked and unrighteous in those cities and anywhere else. Their judgment is coming, and it will be far worse, for as Jude says here, it will be a punishment of eternal fire. And the question for Jude's readers, which includes us, is do we take these examples seriously? Or are these just stories, are they just legends? Are they just made-up stories to scare children and making sure, you know, that they are obeying their parents? Or are they real, genuine examples of God's judgment in the past that we ought to take seriously and learn from today? In the next paragraph, uh, verses 8 through 10, we see three sins believers are tempted to fall into that will be judged. So Jude makes the connection clear between those whom God judged in his three examples to the certain people who had crept into the church that he's Addressing this letter too. Verse 8. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. This makes clear his point. These intruders are heading for certain judgment from God if they continue in these ways. Their works are similar to those who were judged. Their unbelief is like the unbelief of those whom God judged, and their arrogance in defying the Lord's authority is similar to the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority by rejecting it and were judged for it. So these three sins, he points out to these, uh, uh, he, to these people, of, of these intruders to the church were defiling the flesh, which we know refers to sexual immorality, from verse 4, and the example of Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, rejecting authority, which he also brought up in verse 4, when he said that they deny our only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, and they refuse to submit to Christ's authority and the authority of the Lord's apostles and, and their teaching. And for us, they, this is akin to, to simply refusing to adjust your behaviors and beliefs to what the Bible authoritatively teaches. Far too many churches and Christians today, plain and simply, don't agree with what Christ's word says about sex, about marriage, about homosexuality, 
about life in the womb or gender roles in the home and the church. So they, they just reject the authority of the scriptures by trying to explain those things in a different way, different from how the church has understood those things for centuries. And they brazenly declare that they know better than Jesus about those things. The third sin is that they blaspheme the glorious ones, it says in verse 8. They blaspheme the glorious ones. Well, out of the three, this, of course, is the most difficult for us to understand. But, but since Jude has introduced angels into this letter already in verse 6 and refers to angels again in verse 9, most scholars believe that he's referring to angels. The glorious ones are angels. Well, then the question becomes, is he referring to, to good angels or evil angels? Is he talking about blaspheming or slandering demons, which are fallen angels, or um, the glorious heavenly angels that serve the Lord continually? Well, it's definitely a topic of debate amongst Bible scholars. Uh, and one Bible translation I was kind of surprised to see uh, amazingly has a textual note on that verse that declares the glorious ones are probably evil angels. Whenever you see the word probably, it means we're not really sure. But uh, probably, you know, they're, they're pointing in the direction of, of demons. And I was kind of surprised uh, to see that, that note in the translation because it definitely isn't clear that that's what Jude is referring to here. But, but they, they think so. And they're trying to lead their, their readers to think so as well. Uh, but, but what's the big deal about this? Well, the big deal is the arrogance of these false teachers, they think so highly of themselves and their teaching that they are acting like they can speak authoritatively to spiritual beings who have an authority and a purpose that they do not understand, as Jude says there in verse 10. Instead, they should learn from the example of the archangel Michael here in verse 9. So look at verse 9. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now this example that Jude uses is not directly from Scripture. Rather, it's taken from an ancient narrative known as the Assumption of Moses, uh, which includes the story of, of Michael uh, and the devil here. And uh, Michael was uh, referred to in the book of Daniel as the great prince who has charge over Israel. In the story of the Assumption of Moses, Satan was playing his role as the accuser, accusing Moses of his sin of murder and defying God's commands, and therefore argued that Moses' body shouldn't be buried, but left exposed to the elements, which was a sign of judgment and disgrace. But Michael spoke up on Moses' behalf and used the line from Zechariah chapter 3, which records a similar vision, and did not himself slander Satan, but humbly left it to God, saying, the Lord rebuke you. So in the illustration here in Jude, Michael knew his place. He wasn't proud or arrogant, but left the judgment of Satan to the Lord, whereas the intruders that, that Jude is writing about arrogantly spoke and acted like they had authority over angels and other spiritual authorities that, of course, they did not understand. Well, have you ever come across churches or Christians who seem to have a fascination 
with displaying authority over spiritual beings. Speaking against demons or commanding angels to do things for them. Acting like they are in some way superior to spiritual authorities that in actuality they know nothing about. Well, Jude's warning. He's warning us here about that and warning us about trusting teachers who presume to have this authority over powers that they do not understand. It is important for us to also notice where Jude says here these false teachers are getting their knowledge and understanding from. Look back at verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people, so that is the, the intruders, the false teachers that have come to the church, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Jude says they were relying on their dreams. It seems they were claiming to have some direct revelation from God for their teaching. They were claiming to have received dreams and were relying on them for what they were teaching and for how they were teaching other believers to practice their faith. This is, of course, always a misguided way of living. Jude calls it simply living by what they understand instinctively. They, they, they were led by their own passions to defile the flesh with sexual immorality. They, they, they claim to have these, these messages from God through their dreams, which led them to sin and to reject the authority of the Lord and his word. So brothers and sisters, once again, we can see these same errors within the evangelical church today. Teachers who have written books or who appear on Christian radio programs and TV claiming to have had revelations from God claiming to have had dreams or visions or a message from God and then basing their teaching off of that rather than from the Scriptures, rather than from God's all-sufficient Word. Jude's warning us, beware of them. Beware of them, for they will be destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Instead, relying on God's Word for knowing what God Wants is what we are called to do. So rely on God's word. Rely on God's word for understanding the way of salvation. Rely on him. Get to, get to know him. Get to know the Lord Jesus and his power and his authority by being taught the scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That you may be complete and equipped for every good work. And lastly, the, the great importance of taking God's word seriously. Back again to verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. John Stott, a great 20th century evangelical preacher in London, gave this description of evangelical Christians like us. He said, they are those who possess a submissive spirit, namely their presumptive resolve to believe and obey whatever Scripture may be found to teach. They are committed to Scripture in advance, whatever it may later be found to say. 
I'll read that again. Evangelical Christians are those who possess a submissive spirit, namely their presumptive resolve to believe and obey whatever Scripture may be found to teach. They are committed to, committed to Scripture in advance, whatever it may later be found to say. Well, would that be a fair description of you this morning? Are you eager to believe and receive and, and obey whatever God's Word says, even if it is something that our secular culture will not accept or take seriously? Will we receive these stories of God's judgment against sin and unbelief seriously as reminders to, to continue to walk in humility before God and trust His Word? and adjust our will to his will. But you may be thinking, but pastor, pastor, all this talk of judgment, I mean, remind us of the gospel. Remind us that Christ came to save us from this judgment, that, that if we trust Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, we need not have any fear of God's judgment for our sins. That therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That salvation and the forgiveness of sins is by faith alone in Christ Jesus. Amen. That is wonderful news. That is true. That is the gospel. It is glorious. It is amazing. It is the greatest news guilty sinners like us could ever hear. But, my friends, if you don't take these warnings of judgment from God's word seriously, you definitely won't take the gospel seriously either. The gospel is only good news to those who recognize and know their incredible need for it. And if this word from God has indeed humbled you, well then call out to Christ for mercy and grace. And he promises you will be saved. But if you will not believe his warnings, if you will not take these warnings seriously, well then you will not believe his promises. As the Israelites did after being delivered out of Egypt. And then refused to believe God's promises to enter the promised land. In the second semester of my seventh grade year, two of my classmates found out that that little room was indeed used for in-school suspensions. As they each spent a few days there, separated from the rest of us, enduring the mocking and embarrassment of the entire student body, seeing them stuck in there doing their homework and writing out those famous sentences over and over and over again, admitting that what they did was wrong. And that left an impression on me for the rest of my junior and senior high school days, especially when I saw that they even had to eat their lunch in that room. Judgment is real. Judgment is real. May these reminders here in God's word lead you to take God's judgment seriously as well. And your great need for Christ to save you from his judgment.
Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we hear these warnings, I pray that it would have the intended effect upon us, that we would be humbled by it, that we would recognize our great need for mercy and grace, and that we would come to know and to believe the love that you have for us, that we would abide in your love, and that we would have confidence for the day of judgment because of the grace that you revealed to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. May we take these words of judgment seriously so that we may also take the gospel seriously. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.